You don't see all that goes on behind the scenes. And there's some days that everything just comes together beautifully. And there's some days when you believe there's a demon in the in the sound system or the tech or in the baptistry and if you could have seen when we discovered that the that the heater had not worked uh, and there was a lineup of people with bowls emptying the hot water tank coming and dumping it in and back and forth a trail and uh, you know I just I need some of you people who are strong and big and and maybe who love me a little bit, to protect me from these women afterwards, okay? <laughs> Just would you shield me like, I need, I'm going to need some security. I'm going to need some security this morning, Al. They thought it, was, they thought it would be fine until they got in. But I, I, think, I think Keisha was right. Uh, it will be memorable. They will never forget this baptism. And uh, anyway... That's great. Appreciate it. And uh, junior high, sorry for your misfortune this morning. Um, It was a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Returning on a private jet from L.A. where he was having a bachelor party, Marco and his friends returned in high spirits having enjoyed some alcohol on the flight back and then got into Toronto and went to a bar and celebrated a little more on that weekend. And then in the trip home, in a moment, in in, in less than a blink of an eye, Marco Muzo's life would be tragically altered forever. His vehicle would drive through a stop sign and plow into a van with two grandparents, a great-grandmother, and three children, Daniel 9, Harrison 5, and little Millie 2. In a flash, the Neville Lake family was decimated. They would lose their children, uh, cruelly stolen from them at the hands of a happy but inebriated groom-to-be whose blood, uh, blood alcohol level was two to three times the legal limit. Muzo, 29 years old, stood at the scene of the accident, leaning against the car for balance, with glassy eyes and the smell of alcohol on his breath. He looked in disbelief. Four lives senselessly taken. He was convicted on 18 charges, sentenced to 10 years in jail, and uh, having to live with the knowledge of what he had done for a lifetime. I looked at his statement that he made to the family and to the court. He says this, I stand here before you today with great remorse, sympathy, and unimaginable regret. As I listened with horror yesterday to the details of the catastrophic consequences of my action, I knew that my words would be of no consolation. Ever since the tragedy that occurred as a result of my inexcusable conduct, I have wanted to say that I am sorry and apologize to your family, 
from the bottom of my heart. I'm at a loss for words, and I'm on constant search for the right way to express to you my sorrow. I know that there are no actions that can ever change what has happened. I know that there are no steps that I can take to bring back your children, Daniel, Harrison, and Millie uh, Millie Neville Lake, and your father, Gary Neville. I pray that I could, but I cannot. I wish that I could undo the heartbreaking experience that your mother, Nazira Neville, and your grandmother, Josephina Frias, had to witness and continue to live through. I am tortured by the grief and the pain that I have caused your entire family and the tragic effect that this has had on so many others and its impact on the community. I could never have imagined the degree of suffering and pain I've called, caused. I could, if I could reverse the hands of time, I would without hesitation. I want nothing more than attempt to bring some peace to your hearts and mind. He clu- concludes by saying, I will forever be haunted by the reality of what I have done, and I'm truly sorry. I can't imagine what that would be like, to be the cause of that, to stand and see that, to, to sit in court day after day after day, and to watch that family who had their, uh, their children stolen from them and their father. A tortured soul. How do you handle something like this? Uh, How do you handle the guilt? How do you live forever knowing what you have done, that you cannot alter the past? And the estimated $1.8 billion of family net worth with their business can do nothing to erase what had happened. And I'm sure that uh, maybe you have never caused through drunk driving, taken the life of some people, or done something that may be as horrendous as that. But none of us are immune from the problems or the agony that we go through because of things we have done in our past. People we have hurt, offenses that we have committed, a past that maybe very few If anyone here knows about dark secrets that we have, things from our past, what do you do with that? How do you manage that? How do you handle that? Is there any relief from that? Uh, Maybe the mention of a name or a place or an activity or a person, and, and there it comes and floods back into our life, and we are overwhelmed with guilt. Maybe something is mentioned from the pulpit. Maybe a sin. And and, and all you have to do is say that word. And there it is. All over again. And we beat ourselves up. And we go quiet. And we go into a shell. And we find there's no reprieve. It just, we, we continue to live with that. Well, there is a reality for guilt and shame. For us who are followers of Christ, who who have the word of God, who who recognize that we blow it, that we fail God, that we have rebelled about uh, against him and continue to do so. We're reminded in Romans 3.23 that for all of us, every one of us have sinned and we continually fall short of the glory of God, of God's standard, of what God wants for us. And we feel the sting and the shame of conviction for what we have done. 
And we're reminded in Psalm 51 that all sin is really against God. David would say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You, so you are right and your verdict and, just, uh, and uh, justified when you judge. Understanding that no matter how much we hurt others, all sin is first and foremost against God. But you may be here and you say, well, I'm really not a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't purport to read the Bible or subscribe to the Bible. I, I don't live by its standards. And I would say to you, that doesn't really matter because God gave all of us something called a conscience. And though our consciences may be different and be, we can violate our conscience and we can have a, have a seared conscience and, and, and not a sensitivity, yet all of us have an internal sense that God has given us that there is a right and there is a wrong. And we violate even our own code. We're not Christians. We don't go by the Bible, but we violate even our own code. We condemn ourselves in that way. We have our own sense of right and wrong. So what do you do with that stuff? What do you do with your failures? What, what do you do with your flaws? Um, uh, maybe things that you've done in the past and have hurt others. Things that bring pain to others and maybe have caused great inner turmoil and pain for you and shame. Things that we wish we could undo, but we can't. What do you do with that? Well, in the Bible, there was a man uh, who was uh, a great man, a godly man, a, God, a man of faith, a man whom God said, this is a man after my own heart. What a statement that God would make about this guy. As a young man, as a teenager, he, he went and, and, and saw the armies of God facing their opponent, the Philistines, and, and in that confrontation, no one was willing to take on the, the Philistine champion, Goliath. Nine and a half foot tall, a man, a, a seasoned man of, of war, and no one would fight him. But God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, David stepped up and said, I'll take him on with nothing but a slingshot. It was laughable. And uh, he brought him down. Uh, David, this, this man who would become king, who would lead armies, who would be a great man of God. But there was a major stain in his life. When the, when the armies at one point in the spring went out to battle, David decided, now he wouldn't do that. He was going to stay home. He was going to stay home, and, and, uh, and here he is, uh, maybe a bit bored, uh, struggling, and uh, one night he has some insomnia. He's on the roof of his palace, and he looks down over the city, and he sees a beautiful half-naked woman, and uh, she's bathing herself. And he calls some of his servants, go and find out who that woman is. Oh, that woman, yeah, that's Bathsheba. Uh, uh, she is the daughter of Eliam. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And the caution lights should have been, uh, should have been flashing. And, and, the, and the sirens warning him. And, and uh, what he did was said, go and bring me that woman. And he slept with her. He committed adultery in spite of having many beautiful wives. He committed adultery. And could he get away with it? 
well, it seemed to un, until Bathsheba sent him a message. And the message was this. I'm pregnant. Now he's got a conundrum. What do I do? I, I can't. Uh, I've got to do something to cover this over. I've got to deal with this problem. And, and so King David figures this. I'll bring her husband home from the battle line on, the, on the, the guys that I'm really interested in finding out how the battle is. So he sends a message to the battle lines, uh, to General Joab, send home Uriah with a report. And Uriah comes back with the report, and he thinks, well, I'll send him to go uh, to his home and to sleep with his wife. And he got him drunk. And uh, Uriah, what he didn't count on, was that Uriah was a person of much higher moral fiber. And he wakes up in the morning, and there is the guy sleeping on his uh, doorstep. He would not go home. So he says, well, let, let's try this another night. So, so the, the next night, he throws a banquet for him and gets him drunk. And again, he lies on the threshold of the palace door. He will not go home. And David said, man, this is, I don't know. Now i got to figure something else out. This guy is too good. So he sends a letter with his own seal in the hands of Uriah to Joab, who's the general of the army. And when Joab looks at it, he's instructed to put Uriah in a place of the battle where he will surely get killed. He sends back a note. Will David get away with this? Will David, how, how is David going to do with this? What is a king to do? Uh, he's sure that his servants, if they value their life, wouldn't blow the whistle on him. But here he is. And uh, that settles it. Will he ever get found out? What does he do with something like that? Well, well he... He pushes it down. He, he tries to, to get away with it. So when he hears that Uriah has been killed, he generously gives her time to grieve and then brings her into his harem as his wife. Was that the end of it? David was faced, as all of us were, with a sense of, of what it means to sin against God. And in the first place, he understood something about legal guilt. David was guilty. He knew the Ten Commandments. He understood that adultery was wrong. He understood that murder was wrong. This unbridled uh, uh, passion covered up with murder of an innocent man. He understands that God has a law and he has violated that law. He's not innocent. In Psalm 51, David says this, Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. I have stepped over the line. I've, I've violated the law of God. And in a very legal sense, um, he is guilty. And, and his guilt would bring upon him death. The law of the lawbreaker legally guilty before God, and that has been clearly established. In Romans 3.19, it says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Sin 
accountability, uh, justice needed to be served. But there's another aspect to our sin and rebellion against God, and that is a broken relationship. Sin is a violation of God's law, yes, but it breaks the relationship with God. Because of his character, he cannot tolerate sin, so the relationship that he wanted to have with us, he couldn't have. And the prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 59, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But listen, but your iniquities have what? Separated from you, uh, separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden your face uh, uh, from him so, so that he will not hear you. There's the problem. The relationship had been broken. Uh, there was now not the kind of relationship that he had enjoyed uh, with God at all. That, that is broken. You remember back in the garden with our first parents, Adam and Eve, how they loved to spend time with God, and in the cool of the day, God would walk with them and talk with them. And then what happens? Uh, then, then we have an issue. We've got a problem because man violated the law of God, and it broke that relationship. They had this, this something that was so beautiful, and now God goes looking for them in the cool of the day. Adam! Eve, where are you? They love to be with God. And now they're hiding. We're hiding. Why are you hiding? We don't have any clothes on. Who told you you have no clothes? Did you eat? Yes. And they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the presence of the Lord. Outside of his grace and mercy, that's where all of us are. We are separated. Uh, we're, uh, we've... Uh, We've broken that relationship. Do you know the pain and the sting of feeling that God is so far from you? It's terrible. But there's a third aspect also, and that is impurity. Impurity. Sin, in the light of God's white-hot holiness, shows us for what we are. We're dirty. We're filthy. We're impure in his presence. In Psalm 51, uh, David says, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. Have you ever had the sense of, of feeling you were so dirty before God, so filthy, so stained? It's a terrible, terrible feeling. And, and David understood that too. I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. He's plagued. And he, he knows and feels that. In Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, uh, Macbeth kills the king of Scotland so he can take over the throne. And Lady Macbeth is, is inviting him and encouraging him all the way in this. And when he does this, he feels terrible. He was, he, was a valiant, uh, he was a valiant soldier. He was a capable soldier. He, was, he, he had integrity. But now he was seeking to steal for himself the kingship and at, uh, at the encouragement of his wife. And after he kills the king, he's got blood on his hands. And he doesn't know what to do to get rid of that blood. And... Uh, 
And he says this, will Neptune's great ocean wash this blood, making green the sea of red? His wife, who was plagued by it, through the latter part of, the, of that work, is wa- trying to wash her hands. Wash her hands. She's washing, but every time she's looked, there's still the stain of blood on her hands. Washing, washing, washing. H- how do you deal with that kind of thing? And then there's the inner brokenness. Sin affects us in terrible ways. It seems to promise so much. Oh, you know, this is going to be so great if you do this. I know, you know, you feel you shouldn't do it, but so attractive. David looked at that woman and thought, man, this is what I need. This is what I want, irrespective of what God wants. And for the euphoria of but a moment's pleasure that was so fleeting, he compromised himself. Look at what he felt like. Psalm 51.3 says this, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Everywhere I turn, there's my sin. My sin is confronting me. Who I am. He couldn't get away from his sin. In Psalm 51, 8, it says this, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. There was no, there was no joy in his life. He felt terrible. There, there was no laughter. He felt crushed in the inner person. In Psalm 32, it says this, David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your, light, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. I'm depressed. I have no strength. I have no energy. I have no joy. I feel terrible. I have no peace everywhere I go. That's what I'm looking at. And, and uh, for so many people... The, the weight of guilt upon them brings so much difficulty, the shame of it. It leads to emotional and mental stress and struggles, physical symptoms, and, and uh, even being physically ill, carrying those psychological burdens and the burden of sin. And the question I ask you again is, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the pain of your failure and your sins before God? What relief is there for the junk that's in your life and in your past? The things that you've done that you wish you hadn't and the people that you've hurt and the things that you can't undo from your past. Do you feel so far from God? Well, some people try and deal with it with prescription medication or alcohol or illicit drugs Others try to put it out of their mind. Uh, Some people try to justify it, but it doesn't help. It was interesting, I read from one therapist who, who, who had 18 things to do to forgive yourself, 18 things you could do, things like write out the account of what you did, write it in a story form. Um, uh, things like um, make amends where you can things like um, repeat this daily I am innocent even if you're not say I am innocent I forgive myself I love myself say that every day multiple times I'm innocent I'm innocent Uh, I, I forgive myself I love myself. Folks, that doesn't work. 
that doesn't work. They don't have the authority to forgive themselves. Their sin is primarily against God, and we need His forgiveness. So what do you do? David lived in misery, hoping that this would never be found out. His general knew. His staff knew in his palace. They understood. And David is trying to do this until one day God sends a prophet. And the prophet tells David a story. David, he said, I want to tell you the story about a, uh, about a man. He had one little sheep. It was, it was like a daughter to him. It ate at the table with him. It sat in his lap. He loved that. He loved that little sheep. And uh, David, this man, had a very wealthy neighbor. And the, the wealthy neighbor had uh, guests coming, and he needed to prepare a meal for him. So he went and took this little lamb uh, from the poor person and slaughtered it and gave it. And David was incensed. That man should die, David said. And Nathan, with the courage of God, looked David in the eye and he said, You're the man, David. That's exactly what you did. And David was overcome with, uh, with guilt and grief. He was confronted. God did not let him away with that. But you know what? There is forgiveness for guilty people. And here's what God does. First, he justifies us. We are justified. We said this was a legal issue. We failed God. We, we violated his law and we come under his just judgment. But what God does is he will justify us. That is, he will forgive us. He will exonerate us. He will acquit us legally. There is a legal guilt um, in that offense against God. And here's what, here's what David would pray in, in uh, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Get rid of my transgressions. I can't, I can't do it. They, I have violated that. Beautifully, the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 5. Since we have now been justified, you know what justified is to be declared right, righteous, to be absolutely acquitted. And, and, and uh, Paul says this, since we've now been justified by his blood, the blood of Jesus, how much show, more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? What we need is to be declared righteous, and that comes uh, through the work of Christ. That comes through Christ's death on the cross on our part, uh, on, on, uh, on God's part, to place our sin uh, and our failure and the, the uh, offense and the, and the uh, punishment for our sins have been placed on Jesus Christ so that we could be declared righteous. He died in our place so that God could eradicate um, our sentence with justice and unleash his wrath upon his own son. (laughs) And the Apostle Paul could say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned. I have, my, my sin has been atoned for. I am declared righteous in his presence. What a beautiful thing. But 
but we have to deal with a broken relationship too. Our sin fractured that relationship between us and God. We are reconciled. We are reconciled. Listen to what the next verse in, in Romans 5 says in verse 10. It says, For if while we were God's enemies, when, you're, when, when that relationship has been broken, God is your enemy. I know God loves you. That does not excuse that you are under condemnation and your wrath for this sin, and you are an enemy of God. You say, I don't feel like it. You are an enemy of God. When you do not submit to him and you do not put your faith in him for what he's done, you're an enemy of God. But look what God did. He, he said, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. That relationship was put back together through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Isn't that fantastic? So, so here, here is my, my guilt and the punishment for my crime is taken care of. And the relationship has now been repaired with God. And what about the filth in our life? Well, we are also purified. We are purified. The filth and defilement of sin that has soiled our hearts has been cleansed and purified. Listen to what Psalm 51 says. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen to what it says in, uh, in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a, a steadfast spirit within me. In Hebrews chapter 9, this is what the author of Hebrews says. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that... Uh, uh, so that we may serve the living God. He's cleansed us. Um, I've had the privilege of uh, doing some ministry in, uh, in India. And uh, the, the mission outfit that I have worked with, uh, they have one um, part of their ministry uh, to helping free sex trade workers. Some of these girls have been taken as children and uh, they have this whole operation to free them. And they have these Mahima homes. Mahima is like glory. And to take these young gals and for them to understand that all the defilement that has been placed on them, the terrible things that have been done, they can be cleansed and clean before God. What a beautiful thing for all the, the moral filth in our lives to know that cleansing that I am white as snow, though my sins are as crimson. And, uh, and God provides that incredible cleansing for us. And we also finally become healthy. We become whole. Overwhelmed by God's love, by his acceptance of us. Uh, welcomed into his family, our, our slate cleaned, uh, uh, wiped clean. The objects of his love and his favor, we see ourselves in new ways, in, in ways that, you know what I'm talking about when you feel so bad about yourself and things you've done and you look in the mirror and you can't respect that person. And God grants us 
to look in the mirror and see something new that he has created, that we can accept ourselves, that we can have peace from him, that we can have a sense of well-being. And God's desire for you and for me, what he wants for our lives, is that we could take these lives that are messed up, and rotten and shameful things that we have done. And he wants to transform our lives. To take all the junk in our life. And by his grace to get rid of it. And to make us someone new. To forgive us. I don't know about you. But I know that... that that people who are broken and maybe have done things in the past have never been able to get by some of that. You're living with that, and, and as soon as something is mentioned, you feel this twinge of guilt, and you've been carrying that for years and years and years, and I want you to know you don't have to carry that. You can be forgiven by Almighty God. And he wants to take and put that broken relationship back together. He wants to cleanse you. He exonerates you and acquits you from all the charges against you. He wants to do that. He wants you to be forgiven. And I got to feel like in a group of people the size of this, that there are some people who continue to labor and maybe have labored and, bur- and been burdened for years and years about things done in your past, things that maybe you don't want anybody to know about, things that are unspeakable. And I want you to know that God doesn't want you to live there. God wants you to find freedom. This past summer, I read a fascinating article um, in, the, in the paper. It was a 91-year-old man who's in a long-term care facility, a guy who lived uh, a quiet life. He, he began in Britain in five years um, in, in the 1940s. He moved to Canada, married a woman here in Ontario, and lived uh, a quiet life. And he got cancer at the age of 91. And at the age of 91, he got somebody to take him into the nearest police station. And he confessed to an unsolved murder in Britain 70 years earlier. Something happened when, when in, in the long-term care facility and with the diagnosis of cancer. It had been bothering him all his life. 70 years. It, it set a record for people between the time of the crime they'd committed and, and uh, that being found out. You, there was no reason for him to do that except that he had been plagued all his life about that. I want to tell you there is provision for forgiveness. I don't care what you've done, how far you've been, how, how far you've wandered. There is provision that God has for everything you need. And he says... And we just look through how he will forgive and what he does in those various areas. And now what we need to do is we need to live in the light of the forgiveness that God has for us. See, you may, you may have asked God to forgive you for things of your past, but you've never broken free because you're not living in light of your forgiveness. 
And I want to tell you that the enemy will remind you over and over and over again. Yeah, do you remember what you did? you remember what you did in 1942? Do you remember what you did last year? you remember when this happened? You, and, and you feel terrible. And you say, God, God help me. God, forgive me of that. And, and the enemy keeps accusing. You know, he's accuser of the brethren. Keeps accusing you. Yeah, you think God would forgive you for that? It's so terrible. It's so awful. God wouldn't forgive you. And the enemy will challenge you. And you need to hear the voice of God. Listen to the voice of God in Isaiah 43. I, even I, God says, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. They're lost in divine amnesia. You're remembering it. God says, no, no, it's gone. You confessed it, it's gone. Why are you bringing it up? I will never, ever, ever bring it up. See, see with people, we, we know what happens so often, right? Oh, I did something terrible. And, and, and I offended somebody, and, and then I, I make it right with them, and they say, yeah, but remember? Remember you did that? R- remember when you did that? And, and they keep reminding us? And that's what Satan was. You know, remember when you did that? And God said, look, I don't remember it anymore. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. You know, when you go that way and you go that way, they don't meet. And he says, that's, that's how I remove your transgressions from the east to the west. Listen to what Micah says in Micah 7. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? Do you, not, you do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy? You will, again, have compassion on us. You will tra- uh, tread out sins underfoot. And, and uh, you have all of our iniquities, uh, uh, put them in the depths of the sea. And somebody said, yeah, and he put a no fishing sign there as well. It's gone. It's done. And we need to live in the light of the forgiveness we have. Listen to what David could say after he was confronted by the prophet, after he dealt with his sin, after he was trying for some time to hide it and and, and to put it away. Listen to what he says in Psalm 32. Blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord accounts no iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. Man, happy is that person. And I want you to know that that's exactly what God wants for you. And at the start of the series of, of forgiven and forgiving, we need to start with our relationship with God and receiving the forgiveness of God. Probably the greatest missionary the world has ever known was the Apostle Paul. His start, though, was less than Christian. He had committed himself to killing Christians. In fact, I wonder that it would haunt him that he stood there when the first martyr of the church, Stephen, was being stoned to death, 
taking care of the coats of the stoners, egging them on, and watching Stephen uh, with a face glowing, looking up to heaven, asking that God would forgive these people. I wonder if that plagued and stayed in Paul's mind. Everything he did was to, to make it terrible for Christians, to try and imprison them or kill them. I want you to hear what he says in 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus may display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Hey, if he can do it for the Apostle Paul, who was murdering Christians, thinking he was doing God some favor, if he can do it for David, who committed adultery and murder, he can do it for you. Don't live in in unforgiveness. God wants to pour his grace upon you and that you would know forgiveness. Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Who can make me whole again? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible truth. And Father, as we begin this series about forgiveness and, and, and how we need to respond as Christians, Father, we need to start right here with you. And we worship you and thank you for how great and how awesome you are, what you have done for us, and how there is forgiveness. Father, and I pray for people who may be struggling to receive your forgiveness, who are beating themselves up week after week and, and, and not getting out of the pit, that they would receive your grace and forgiveness. And Father, I pray for those who, who perhaps have never trusted Christ yet, and they look at their life and the stuff, and they don't, they don't know what to do with that stuff. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to realize that they can bring that to Christ Jesus. Put their trust in him and be forgiven and cleansed and to have that relationship. And so, Father, I just pray that your spirit will work in our lives wherever we need you to speak to us. In Christ's name, amen.